right now on Matter of Fact. In dozens of cities, the fight against vaccine hesitancy is going door to door. We have knocked on about 10,000 doors so far. We've identified over 3,000 homes that, you know, need to be vaccinated. Meet the COVID survivor on a crusade to save her community, one block at a time. I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna talk to you again. Plus, what you haven't heard in the conversation about climate change. Is there time to intervene? We actually have the ability to prevent catastrophic climate change. A leading scientist lays out a plan to pull us back from the climate cliff. And 50 million working adults don't earn a living wage. They're in high effort, low skill, low wage jobs. Basically, they're working their tails off without a lot of upward mobility. Until now. You took a kid from West Virginia that didn't have much, you know, going on and opened up a whole new world of opportunity for me. Find out how a group of investors is turning lives around in eight weeks or less. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Impatience and frustration are giving way to rage as the gulf between Americans who are vaccinated and unvaccinated grows. The deadly Delta variant is spreading across the country, overrunning emergency rooms and filling hospital beds. More than 97% of people hospitalized for COVID-19 in mid-July were unvaccinated. In an effort to overcome vaccine hesitancy, dozens of cities have taken their outreach to the streets. One of those cities is Chicago, with a vaccination rate of just 53%. We went door to door with a canvasser, Lisa Butler, a COVID survivor who's determined to get her community vaccinated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I hope everyone's day is going well so far. My name is Lisa Butler. I am a supervisor for the Contact Tracer Canvassing Vaccination Corps here in the great city of Chicago. Every day, I go door to door. I talk to my community members about the importance of the vaccination. All right, everybody in the home or in the building that you know is Typically, the first thing we want to know, has your house been vaccinated? The next thing is, if the home or family members haven't been vaccinated, do you need help getting vaccinated? If the household is not vaccinated, we ask that community member if they need assistance being vaccinated. If so, we can set them up with an appointment. We actually do homebound, which means that we come to the community members' homes now and vaccinate them in the home. If they say, well, nope, not vaccinated, don't want to be vaccinated, we typically ask that community member if they wouldn't mind telling us why. We are not there to judge. We are there to inform and assist our community members in getting vaccinated. The people that are not getting vaccinated, you know, they just don't want to do it because, again, for me, it's been just so much misinformation that they've gotten about the vaccine. And for those that don't or they're not sure, I give them as much information as I can so that they can make that choice for themselves. The information that we gather when we're canvassing, that information is crucial because it helps us to determine which neighborhoods and which communities and even which objectives we need to overcome to get our community members vaccinated. I'm pushing hard every day, hoping that one day we're going to come on TV and we're going to say, you know what, Chicago has no cases of COVID today. Those going door to door encounter a range of people at the door from the COVID deniers or just the uncertain. Dr. Laura Murray is a clinical psychologist and a senior scientist at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. She's an expert on behavioral health issues. Dr. Laura Murray, thank you for joining me. Um, 
Give me a sense of what's driving that 40% of people who are just not vaccinated and, and don't seem to want to be vaccinated. So we're hearing not enough information, worries about possible side effects, distrust in government to make sure that vaccines are safe and effective. Politics have played a role. The belief that the risk of COVID may be exaggerated is something we're hearing. This idea like, I don't know enough about the vaccine. Where does that come from? Is that, um, is that misinformation? In general, those that are hesitant have a psychological variable that has a lower level of trust in scientists, healthcare professionals, and state likely not surprising. They tend to have lower levels of something we call cognitive reflection or just lower levels of thinking through something very carefully. They tend to have lower levels of altruism. Conspiratory thinking is another predictor of vaccine hesitancy. We also are seeing a psychological variable where these folks are, are having higher levels of an internal locus of control. And what that means is they like to have more control, which may guide the need to have more of that information. Knowing all of that then, and knowing the psychological profile, how do you use that to get that 40% vaccinated. One of the things we talk about while working on human behavior change is taking some of the emotion out of it. And this is so much easier said than done because a lot of us who are reaching out feel a certain way ourselves. Another solution is to ask a lot of questions. What would these people need to know to consider the vaccine rather than just feeding what we might come up with. We know that messaging is often best when it's someone who's trusted. And I know different communities and, and governments are using social influencers or community leaders to reach those that are vaccine uh, hesitant at a neighborhood level. Research shows that positive emotional messages such as altruism and hope are actually more effective than negative ones or forcing people. And Soledad, you brought up, you know, for those that are strongly opposed to vaccines, just based on emotion or ideology, morals, it's very, very challenging to override them with facts and information, just from a human behavior change perspective. So we really need to work on different messaging for these groups, maybe almost characterize it as a right or privilege that they shouldn't let others take away from them. Dr. Laura Murray with Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much. So nice to talk to you. Thank you, Soledad. Coming up on Matter of Fact, a look at a new approach to job training that could double your income. Yeah, I mean, I don't see what else would be the American dream, you know, going from $20,000 a year to 41 plus a year in five weeks uh, with just a little hard work. And next. 10 years ago, it was still kind of obscure, but now when we go outside and we see fires, floods, droughts happening, it's really hard to ignore. What the future looks like because of climate change. A dire warning for planet Earth this week. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report saying the threat from global warming within the next few decades will cause more flooding, more heat waves, more droughts, and more wildfires. It's a prediction causing increased anxiety. In fact, the number of Americans who say global climate change is a major threat has grown from 44 percent in 2009 to 60 percent last year. Dr. Jessica Tierney is a lead author of the report 
and an associate professor at the University of Arizona, where she studies paleoclimatology, the study of past climates. Dr. Tierney, nice to have you. Thank you for talking with me. As one of the lead authors of this study, I'm curious what you think are the most important takeaways of the study. So compared to the last time one of these reports came out, which was eight years ago, the scientists have much more confidence now that uh, this warm, the warming and changes in extreme weather events like droughts, floods, hurricanes are due to human influence. So let's talk about that human influence. That rise in temperature is doing what in, in where? We've seen some extraordinary heat waves in the Western United States earlier this summer, for example. You know, basically, as the average temperatures go up, the, the chance that we're going to have an extreme heat wave increases. So in other places, climate change manifests as changes in the water cycle, basically how much rainfall you get. Uh, so some places get too much, right? They'll get more extreme heavy rainfall events, which might cause floods. And other places like where I live uh, may be subject to more extreme droughts. And then of course, if you live on the coastline, a big concern is sea level rise. At a minimum, we expect about a foot and a half of sea level rise by uh, 2100. Then of course, hurricanes are a big one for every degree of warming, we expect that hurricanes will get more intense. So not necessarily more storms, but stronger ones. I think one of the challenges around messaging about uh, global warming um, is that people just don't believe it. I think 10 years ago, it was still kind of obscure. But now when we go outside and we see fires, floods, droughts happening, and they're all over the news, it's really hard to ignore, you know, and eventually something is going to affect your community uh, and where you live in, in one way or the other. Is there time to intervene or has the window closed on that opportunity? And if there is time, what do we do? In fact, there's a lot that we can do and we have a lot of choices open to us. We actually have the ability to prevent catastrophic climate change. The best thing you can do is vote. Vote for uh, policymakers who are gonna make climate change a priority, and that includes local elections. So even small stuff like, let's say, getting your city to switch to electric buses or investing in community solar projects or things like that that really benefit everyone. Uh, but ultimately, right, to, to, if we want to cut emissions, we have to change the mix of energy that, that goes into our electrical grid, for example. So, you know, right now it's a mix of, of coal and oil and natural gas. And then there's the renewables, solar and, and hydropower and things. And we need to shift that mix over to renewables as fast as possible. Dr. Tierney from the University of Arizona, thank you so much for your time, I appreciate it. Thanks. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, millions of employers begging for skilled workers. We don't have enough students here in our facility to satisfy employer demand. We take a look at one idea that's working and getting trained workers into high demand jobs. And later, America on foot. The trail crosses 14 states, six national parks, and eight national forests. A salute to 2,000 of America's most beautiful miles. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. The job market is hot. The Department of Labor says U.S. employers posted 10.1 million job openings in June, that after hiring 6.7 million workers. 
So while much has been said about the demand for workers, little has been said about the training gap. Our correspondent Jessica Gomez takes a look at an innovative approach to help workers get the skills that match the jobs. Every day I don't know what I'm gonna get handed. It's like a big puzzle, you know, it's problem solving. Cam Judy, less than a month into a brand new job as a diesel technician in Columbus, Ohio. Over the past year, a lot has changed for the 28 year old. You kind of have that pit in your stomach, like how am I gonna take care of my family? Cam was living in West Virginia when the pandemic started. His wife lost her corporate job and his job as a chiropractic assistant wasn't enough to pay the bills. I started looking at what can I do to have that advancement and something I enjoy doing. So we need to know our battery health. That's when he found American Diesel Training Centers in Columbus, offering a five-week training program with no upfront tuition costs and help with things like transportation and living expenses. I was like, this is too good to be true. I, my grandfather worked in the automotive industry for 30 years working on cars. There's no way I can learn anything that he knows in five weeks and then get a, and people are gonna hire me. But in an industry with tens of thousands of job openings, even before graduating from the program, Cam had multiple offers. He's now making nearly $42,000 a year at Kenworth Trucks, more than double what he was making just a few months ago. So it allows people to very quickly, with very little risk, to elevate their socioeconomic status, sometimes exponentially. Have you got interviews set up, offers? Tim Spurlock, CEO of the training program, says his biggest challenge is recruiting students. Most are low-wage earners who can't afford the $10,000 tuition or to take time off of their current jobs. And many don't have the credit to get a loan. So over four years, that's a payment max of 13000 But recently, they found a solution, partnering with Social Finance, a financial nonprofit headquartered in Boston. The American dream hasn't worked for everyone, but it used to work much better. The nonprofit, co-founded by Tracy Palangian, raises money from philanthropic foundations and uses it to help pay students tuition at training programs like American Diesel. But it's not a donation, it's an investment. Their primary objective is to achieve impact, but they also see the limitations of donations. This is how it works at American Diesel, for example. Graduates who don't get a job or make less than $30,000 a year are off the hook for the cost of their $10,000 tuition. Those making between 30 and 40,000 pay back about 70% of their tuition costs in capped monthly payments. Earners bringing in $40,000 or more pay it back in full, plus an additional $3,000. They get sick or lose their job, they don't pay. The investors are taking on a huge risk. They know that they might only get their principal back. And if it's a really tough economy, they might only get 80 cents on the dollar back. Social finance are raising enough to partner with a handful of IT training programs as well, and will soon branch out into sectors like healthcare and green energy in desperate need of a skilled workforce. We don't want to wear out that overriding clutch, remember? The engine powering the deal, Tim Spurlock says, accountability. We all have skin in the game. If, if we don't recruit quality people, give them good training, and put them out into industry working in successful jobs and making payments, 
um, Social Finance will find another program to invest in. Since partnering with Social Finance, American Diesel Training Centers has been able to double its enrollment, with 90% of its graduates getting hired. For Cam Judy, his new career playing out even better than he expected. His wife and furniture on their way to Ohio. Looking towards settling down, buying a house, doing the, the adult things, the American dream stuff, you know. Um, so we're just excited about our future. In Columbus, Ohio, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Coming up on Matter of Fact, a pop quiz. Can you name the first climate scientist to discover the link between carbon dioxide and warming temperatures? We can. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. As we started doing the research on climate change for our story, we happened upon a bit of history that's been overlooked. The story of a woman named Eunice Foote, an amateur scientist born in Connecticut in 1819. Now, Foote made a remarkable discovery in the 1850s that could have been the foundation of modern climate science. Foote's experiment involved two glass cylinders. Each was filled with various substances, including moist air and carbon dioxide. Foote placed a thermometer in each container, put them in the sunlight. As she reported in her 1856 paper about her experiment, the cylinder with the moist air became warmer than the one with the dry air, and the cylinder with the carbon dioxide warmed up even more and took longer to cool. Well, records show that Foote was the first person to say in print that higher carbon dioxide levels would make the planet warmer. Her accomplishments are brought to life in a 2018 short film called Eunice. Next on Matter of Fact, we celebrate the nation's longest marked footpath, the Appalachian Trail. That's a lot of steps. Finally, we celebrate the nation's longest marked footpath, the Appalachian Trail. On August 14, 1937, the 2,000-mile route was finally finished. Starting at Springer Mountain in Georgia, the trail crosses 14 states, six national parks, and eight national forests, finally ending in Maine. Benton McKay, a land use planner, came up with the concept. Myron Avery, a maritime lawyer and hiker, helped carry out the idea in 1930. Avery was the first person to hike the trail when it was completed seven years later. An estimated three million people visit the trail every single year. More than 3,000 people attempt the entire trail. Only about a quarter, though, make it to the end. Hikers average 14 to 20 miles a day taking between five and seven months to finish the route. That's a lot of steps. I'm Soledad O'Brien. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about vaccination campaigns that go door to door, how rising global temperatures lead to extreme weather events, a unique job training project that matches workers with jobs, and the story of an amateur climate scientist overlooked by history, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.